Hello, and welcome to Tonebenders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Tim Muirhead, and today I will be your host as we step onto the road, and if we don't keep our feet, there is no knowing where we might be swept off to as we discuss the Lord of the Rings trilogy of films that came out in 2001, 2002, and 2003. It's been 20 years since the third film came out, and we thought it'd be fun to gather some of the sound team to discuss their work on these groundbreaking and iconic films. Before I introduce our guests for this discussion, I just wanted to say up front that the format of a podcast can only allow for so many voices. So obviously our guests today weren't the entire team that made these films. For instance, Dave Whitehead is not joining us today, but if you want to hear his thoughts on his work on these films, we talked to him about it in episode number 103, Dave tells many tales, including a crazy device he built to stretch wicker to extremes to make the sound of the ends. But let's talk about who we do have with us today. This is a fantastic panel, and let's get the ball rolling. I'm excited. I'm going to introduce each of them and ask them to quickly tell us their roles on the Lord of the Rings films. First up, we have Tim Nielsen, who is a returning guest after previously being on 115 and 179. Uh, Tim, welcome. What role did you have on the trilogy? I was um, director, producer, star, <laughs> and screenwriter, but I was credited as a sound effects editor. Excellent. Next up, we have Katie Wood, who was previously on Tonebenders on episode 124, talking about the film Just Mercy. Welcome back, Katie. Can you tell us what your role was back then? I was an effects assistant and effects recordist and a Foley editor. There you go. Excellent. Now, as returning champion, we have Brett Burge, who listeners should remember from our epic Beatles Get Back episode, number 193. Uh, Brent, other than causing general havoc, what was your role on the first films? Nothing, <laughs> apart from him. <laughs> no, just havoc. Okay, perfect. <laughs> now, I was involved in the effects department as well as an effects editor. Excellent. Okay, uh, David Farmer is someone that has never been on Tonebenders before. I don't understand how this is possible. He has long been on our list of guests we would love to have, so it is a real pleasure to introduce David Farmer today. It's lovely to meet you, David. Same here. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. And what did you spend most of your time doing two-plus decades ago on these films? <laughs> Having a blast, and I was effects sound designer. And finally, our last guest I'm going to introduce is another first-timer for Tonebenders and someone that we have long been hoped to check off of our must-have guest list. Uh, we welcome Chris Boys. Chris, you were the re-recording mixer on, this, on these, I believe? That's correct. I was the sound effects re-recording mixer on all three of them. Perfect. Okay, listeners will know all of your names, both from your work on Lord of the Rings as well as many of the amazing projects you have all done since. But when Fellowship of the Rings started Audio Post, it would have been nearly 25 years ago. And you all would have been, I'm assuming, very close to the beginnings of your careers. Uh, some of you were maybe even in your 20s. Uh, these are absolutely massive undertakings for someone with a storied career behind them to take on. Can Maybe we can go through each of you to talk about what you was going through your head when you arrived on the first day of work when you started. Uh, maybe, Tim, do you want to take it first? Yeah, I mean, I remember maybe not the first day of work, but within the first day or two of work, we all went into, sadly, the late Mike Hopkins' office to watch the very first cut, or I think it was the tax cut. So it was the cut that was done to sort of fulfill the obligation of having a cut. And I just remember that it was incredibly long and incredibly rough. And having packed everything of my life away for what I thought was going to be, you know, three years, I think I had a little bit of a what the hell have I done moment, honestly, 
I mean, it was still, I was very early in my career. I'd only had three film credits before that, honestly, I think at Skywalker before I went down. And so, yeah, I just remember that first meeting, all of us sitting in Mike Hopkins' office, kind of everybody, Dave, I don't know if you were there then, you might not have been there, but Brent, you were there and Chris Ward and Mike Hopkins and Ethan and all of us were there to watch that first cut, I think. And I just remember kind of thinking, wow, what are we in for here? That's what I remember. David, do you want to tell us about your first impressions? Sure. I mean, I remember that tax cut because I was one of the, I had to go work on it. It was a very small crew at that point. But my introduction to the whole thing was we flew over and we were sort of touring around Australia and New Zealand to look at studios where it might mix. I don't remember who was on the tour with me. I don't know if Chris was on the tour or not, but it was a really small group of people. And we got a like a personalized tour from Richard Taylor. So we got to see all of the stuff that they've been working on, all the props and and stuff. And then we, that was just kind of blowing my mind just to look at how, what had gone into the production. I was like, okay, look what, look what we're going to have to match. You know what I mean? The sort of detail that, that had gone into it. This is what's going to fall on us to continue. And then we went into Peter's cinema where he'd been looking at dailies and stuff. And I remember the shot like it was yesterday. It was that shot of the, my favorite shot in the whole trilogy really is the shot of the ring as Boromir's reaching over to pick it up. It's in the snow and it's right, extreme close up right there on, on the snow. And I think that must be the shot they paused in his theater just to make sure that whoever saw the movie for the first time saw this magnificent shot, you know, just to blow people away. So as soon as I saw that shot, I sort of knew what we were up against, you know, or at least just how good it was going to look and be. I could talk for hours, so I'm going to stop there. But that was like my first day coming on. And then the tax cut came sometime after that. Katie? I'm so impressed you remember all this stuff, Tim and Dave. Crikey. (laughs) (sighs) In such detail. It made an impression. What can I say? No, no, it's awesome. Uh, Yeah, so I started on the film. I had been talking backwards and forwards with Mike Hopkins for some time beforehand because I'd worked as his assistant for a few years prior and I was working and living over in Australia at the time and he called me up to offer me a job and I was extremely ecstatic about the whole thing. So came on and pretty much would have done whatever was required. It was definitely going to be a bumpy ride, but one that we were all in for. Brent? Yeah, I mean, I was in Australia as well at the time. I'd been back to work on Frighteners, which was great fun, with Hoppy and Phil Benson and Randy. And Hoppy did mention that he really wanted to get me back for a next show that was coming up. And I do remember the call from Hoppy and also jumping on the plane and coming over. And it was, you know, coming over from Australia to work on a show over here in New, in New Zealand. It felt like yeah, there's a little bit of royalty involved, like you were picked up at the airport, you were taken to a house where you were going to kind of live for you know, what ended up being, what, 20, 20 plus years. <laughs> and then we're kind of shown to the facility up at Wexford Road, which is overlooking the airport, which is still owned, uh, run by Wet. It's a great place, great spot. And that's where, of course, we met with Hoppy on one side and old Barry Osborne had his offices on the other side. It was an expanded kind of area there at the Wexford, at the Wex, as we used to call it. Its memory going back that far to the, the, those first days is actually pretty rough for me. I can't. Well, I think it was pretty much a blur because, yes, as you said, Tim, it was really. I think Rings was a real foundation for me in terms of my career at that point. Really, just started on Rings, and I'm just really pleased that it's kind of gone pretty well. But being that formative time, it's just a blur. It's just I cannot remember that much apart from sitting in my room thinking, wow. 
we've got a lot to do. <laughs> <laughs> and what a fantastic team it was. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it was actually a really kind of meeting Dave and Tim for the first time, Katie coming over, and a number of the others, Craig and Dave, Whitehead, et cetera, et cetera, as well as kind of the dialogue side as well, Jazz Cannabis and all that kind of stuff. Once we got up and running, it was, well, for my kind of limited experience of not leaving my room very often, it was kind of awesome. Such a great team. Chris? Well, let's see. I guess I came over in 1998 and I met with Pete a couple of times talked about the project, and at that point, it had originally been a project that Randy Tom was going to do, but Randy decided he didn't want to make the trip to New Zealand again, having done Frighteners there, and Pete didn't want to leave New Zealand, so I came down and started talking to him about it, and I realized that the commitment was going to be so large that I said, well, originally Phil Benson was going to be our supervisor along with Hoppy, and the two of them seemed to get along really well, and and I was going to potentially sound design it. And I said to Pete, you know what? I, I can't make a commitment for this long because my kids were young and it would have meant moving my whole family down with three children. I just couldn't have done it. So at that point, I said, you know, look, I'll mix it and I'll help you put together a crew that can do this. And then Phil Benson sort of along the process decided that he wasn't really up for that long of a project either. And so somehow the whole thing transformed into... Um, Ethan coming on board to supervise it with Hoppy, and I suggested David Farmer come down and, and be the, the sound designer, and thank God David said yes, and so I signed on to, to be the mixer. And that trip that you mentioned, David, that was you and I and Barry and a bunch of folks, because the studio at the time didn't believe that we could pull it off in New Zealand. They adamantly did not think we could do it in New Zealand, and they only felt that we could do it in a large facility somewhere in Australia, if not LA. But Pete had never intended to go anywhere other than New Zealand. And so we traveled around Australia and listened to all these rooms. And that's what I was telling you earlier is I, I brought down a couple of things that I'd mixed at Skywalker and played it in all these rooms and, and I could never hear my mix. And then I went out to the film unit to where they had mixed Frighteners and they put up my mix and I played it and instantly there was my mix. And unbeknownst to me, Pete had never had any intention of working anywhere else, but I told the studio, the only place I can do it is down out of here in, in Wellington at the film unit, which is in the lower hut. So that, that was an original kind of entree into the world where it was forming the crew, really kind of two, three years before we really got going. And then, of course, David and Tim and Ethan and Brent. And by the way, Brent, I met you at Roger Savage's place on that trip to Australia where you were working for Roger. That was the first time I met you. Me too. And then I, I pretty much stepped away and all these guys took over and started doing all these incredible recordings. Katie was like kind of doing everything. And Hoppy was just this flurry of activity who had this just amazing heart and amazing energy. And by the time I came down to start pre-dubbing, this whole world had developed between the time that I first met Pete three years earlier and, and the time that we actually sat down and start mixing. Well, and Chris, you actually offered me, when you were going to sound design it, you asked me to come down as your sound design assistant. And then like three weeks later, you came into my room again and was like, yeah, I'm not going to do that film after all. And I was just completely crestfallen for oh, like no. a month after that. And then Ethan came to me and asked me to come down as an effects editor ultimately. But yeah, I mean, it was the highest and the lowest of my life were within like three week period <laughs> when you, you were like... 
asked me to go down to New Zealand and then basically said, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. And that was oh, just remember. God. I'm sorry, Tim. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was fine, but it's fun. it was just, yeah, I remember that. Like, I remember the day that you came into my office to tell me that you had decided you didn't want to commit to three full years and all this stuff. And I, yeah. Well, I remember when, when Chris mentioned it to me too, because I, I actually had gone by Chris's office or studio just to say goodbye one day. And uh, we were chatting and he's like, I got this film, I, I can't do it. I had been doing a bunch of design with Chris on films like Armageddon and Con Air and stuff like that. Previously, we had a pretty good working relationship and um, Chris said, I've got this film, I can't do it. It's, it's called Lord of the Rings. Would you, would you have time? And I knew that Peter Jackson was doing it and I loved The Frighteners. It was so hard for me to contain my excitement because I didn't want to tip off Chris to make him think he might want to reconsider doing these three because I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I'm like, I, I, you know, it was just like I was all in from, from, one, from, from that moment. I was all in. So it made my career really. I had been, I think I had been doing sound design about eight years at the time. And at the time I thought I knew a lot more than I knew. Now I know what I didn't know at the time. But uh, it was so much fun. Yeah, yeah, I remember that moment. And also another little tidbit about that um, studio tour. I found out some years later that some people at New Line did not believe us when we had said that the film unit was the best theater. They thought we were just capitulating to Peter, you know, sort of kissing his butt. But the, I, and I said, no, no, no. The truth was we actually thought it was by far the best studio to mix in. It sounded the most like like the ranch, like Skywalker Studios. He's like, oh, well, I'll have to tell them that. <laughs> At the time, as you recall, we didn't know the, the politics of what was going on. We just got mm. taken to, to Australia on this whirlwind tour. It was a lot of fun and met all these great people, but that was really true. We had no idea. I, it was unknown to me the politics of what was going on. It was just like you say, David, we instantly, both of us, just like, well, there, this is where we have to mix. I have to throw in one quick memory, which is, Chris, when we started pre-mixing, I was one of the first ones, if not the first one, to sit on the stage with you. And day two of the pre-mix, we blew up the subwoofer so bad that parts literally flew out the front of it in the film unit. I don't know if you remember that. But I, think, I think his name wow. was Ian, who was the tech on the stage. But it was like within the first couple of days, we heard this. We were mixing some huge scene, and we heard this pop, and literally a little metal piece flew out the front of the subwoofer, <laughs> and we just literally destroyed the thing. So as much as we love the film unit, I don't think it was quite ready for what was coming. No, that was Ian Bidgood. That was Ian yeah. Bidgood. Yeah. But, but as you recall, Tim... When I went down there before, when Phil was going to be involved, and this is when David and I did the tour in Australia, I said, yeah, we, we can mix it here, but we can't mix. They had an Atari analog console, and they had dubbers, you know, film dubbers. And I said, well, this is never going to work. And so Phil and I put together this white paper of everything that they needed to do to build out to give us the ability to mix the film. And Pete went out and bought it and put it together. And 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 um, who was our chief engineer back there? Brent, uh, you know, uh, John Neal. No, John Neal. Yeah, John, John Neal. Yeah, built Neal. that facility, <laughs> rebuilt the facility, keeping the sound of it. Because you remember, yeah. that the Park Road Post has a coffin shape, and the original coffin shape came from the film unit out there in the lower hut. Right. And it was a great sounding room, but it wasn't technically yeah. up to what we needed it to do. So we bought a euphonics console 
and we but the DR DA eighty eight. Everything moved to MMR eight. Oh yeah, MMR eight. MMR eight, which yeah. Brent and I spent many a night until four in the morning conforming one by one by one, eight tracks at a time. Oh, every Lord. single night as they kept changing picture. Yep, same. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Hey, that was great fun. Hey, so what was the um, disc that they did? They have the phonics out at the unit, or did, was it only at um, the film? Uh, sorry, it was only at Park Road that they had the phonics. No, 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 no. We had the euphonics at park at the film unit. Yeah. Oh, the film unit as well. Right, okay. Wow. Yeah, and then it got moved in bits to Park yeah. Road. I remember that. Hedgie yeah. was next door pre-dubbing on the old Atari, doing fi- uh, mix updates and whatnot. Yeah. Isn't that right, Katie? That's if we remember to take our drives out. Well, our huge nine, were they nine gig drives or something? Yeah, that, yeah that, something I think like that's that. right. Yeah. It was insane. All I know is every reel had about 27 drives, I think, for the mix. I think across all the different dialogue, Foley effects, every every reel had 27 drives or so. I remember that because we were we were out outside of A. We had moved into like double A or something for the naming scheme. Oh, my God. It was so complicated back then. And, and, yeah. and, and how yeah. big was our crew? I mean, I think there was about 30 assistants and editors. On Fellowship? No, no, no. Not anywhere near that on Fellowship. On, by Return of the King, it was that big, but Fellowship was a small crew, about 12 of us total on Fellowship, probably. Oh, my God. You you guys never got a day off. No. I mean, no. Brent and I literally were there till four in the morning most nights. I mean, during in, in, the, in the final mix, I remember, you know? The, the stage would wrap and we would just get started and we'd have to conform all those things out there. Well, do I have to walk past Dave Farmer's kind of um, V collection of... <laughs> <laughs> My one of the best memories yeah. from the whole project was still David Farmer, who thought that a can of V had less calories than a can of Coke, until oh, he realized God. that a can of V had three and a half servings per can. And I remember still his reaction when he realized he had drank about four or five of them a day for the previous year. I I remember one day where I had like three of them in one day. God, that stuff was delicious. Oh man, it was so good. And people don't but, even know V is like a like Red Bull, but from New Zealand, basically. Or from, yeah. I don't know if it's from New Zealand, but Australia, or somewhere down there. But it's like yeah. an energy drink. It was before the energy drink wave hit the U.S. It was like yeah, it was like an energy drink over that because I, I remember over that I was like going, man, we got to get this stuff over here. But I remember one day I had like three or four of them in one day, and I had some pretty serious palpitations. That was not a good, not a good, day, not a good day. But man, that stuff was good. Oh. We should let Tim ask another question. <laughs> We're going to ramble on for the next two hours. Yes. No, I'm happy. I'm happy. This is good. <laughs> I got a question for just Katie and Brent. Uh, if you guys just want to lean in a little bit. Like, I'm Canadian. You guys are Australian or uh, New Zealand and Australia. Are you both New Zealand, actually? Yep. You're, okay, so you're yep. New Zealanders. I'm Canadian. You're New Zealanders. What were your real thoughts when all these Americans started showing up here? Brent, you go first. <laughs> okay, well, actually, for me, for me, it was actually... Um, Coming out of the Frighteners experience uh, with uh, Phil Benson and Randy Tom, there was actually a massive amount of anticipation for us, for me anyway, because Rings was like the springboard, as it were, into our careers, as it were. Then Frighteners for me was like the building of that thing. That's where my education came uh, thick and fast from Phil Benson about kind of digital versus film and that whole kind of process. So we had already in New Zealand had really already experienced filmmaking and sound 
which we hadn't experienced before in New Zealand. And it was a big turning point for a lot of us. And then Rings was really more an establishment of that with Dave and Tim and Ethan and Chris, et cetera, coming on. There was, no, it was a huge, for me anyway, sorry, Katie may have a kind of a slightly different perspective on it, but for me it was just, nah, this is going to be great fun. Because we're going to show these Americans that all the things that they told us that wasn't quite true and the frighteners that we can now re-establish the proper pecking order of kind of sound legends. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally agree with everything Brent said, to be honest. It was like I, my first big feature film as an assistant and everything was The Frighteners. So, you know, that was an exposure to all these different systems that all these Skywalker people came down with and just doing things on a larger, massive scale. And also, you know, my experience up to that point had been also more in New Zealand film and television where, for instance, you know, films are virtually locked by the time you got them because it was way too expensive to deal with conforming. And so the whole system of dealing with conforming alone was kind of a revelation and just how much of it we would have to do. And so gleaning from all these Americans about how to how to manage that and how to put it into a systematic order was awesome. I remember asking somebody, I don't remember who it was now, but, you know, I think I said something like, well, how do you want to handle change notes? And literally they said, what's a change note? And it was somebody who had really never worked on film. Because like you were saying, the, the films they had worked on just never, they were locked by the time sound started. And, you know, I think we went through nearly 100 versions of picture on rings by the time it was done. I was going to say something about, oh, I mean, there was, there's a, a pretty kind of funny story from Frontner's days where we kind of informed Phil Benson about how we were going to conform stuff, which is pretty much using guide tracks. And there was this kind of pause on the phone as he kind of then came back saying, yeah, okay, that would work for rudimentary kind of changes. And then they had to involve, because Frontner's was cut on film, they had to get a change note assistant to basically recut a print to match the newly cut print. So they would actually have to match the moves and write up a change note, literally handwritten change note. And unfortunately for the Kiwis, we couldn't really kind of handle it that much and they had to bring somebody down to do it in order for it to be done within three hours, which was kind of Phil Benson's kind of edict that, no, man, this is taking way too long. So this is actually literally somebody recutting film to match the current cut, writing a change note as they went. And so we'd come out of that on Fridays and to come into rings, we knew really that Peter was going to be this guy who won't be locking picture, and he didn't. (laughs) Um, And so we had to develop kind of new techniques of finding ways to uh, get the conforms done. I was just going to say that, that the films, you know, Fellowship and Two Towers weren't nearly as bad. I don't want to say bad, but... Return of the King was where it really started to blow up, like more like what we're used to seeing now where things change on a daily basis. Like I remember Return of the King was the first time I remember getting three versions of the same reel in one day. You know, and before that, they weren't, the updates weren't nearly as bad. They were a little bit more traditional. But at the time we thought, wow, this is a lot of changes. And they were, you know, (laughs) but 
not like what we're used to seeing now. But well, each of the films, I think, got progressive. I wasn't on Two Towers, but I think, you know, there was a fall-on effect because he was shooting all three at once. So even though Fellowship got out of the way and the other things for Rings or, you know, Return of the King was pushed back very late because they were still finishing Two Towers and all of these things. And so, yeah, I just remember when I went back in 2003 for Return of the King, how much the crew had grown. That's when it was out to like 30 people and there were a, a ton of editors and a ton of assistants because it was needed because, yeah, the, things were changing so fast on that. And I really came on only for two months at the very end of the mix, pretty much, or very close to the end of the mix. But that was chaos for sure then. Much different than how Rings started. Rings was busy but controlled. Return of the King was just really nuts. That sounds like the right trajectory, as I recall now. And the the one thing that I always felt each time I came down there, I, I sort of felt like as hard as everybody was working... I felt like we were just really gifted this opportunity because no production working in California would have given us the resources that Peter afforded us or the size of crew Mm -hmm. or the amount of hours that we worked or the amount of hours that we mixed. No other production would match that level of um, people Uh, power and mixing time and design time. And you guys were going out to do these wild records all over the place that other productions never afforded us that kind of luxury. And as hard as we all worked and as many hours that everybody put in, we were allowed to do that at the same time because Peter said, yeah, whatever it takes, let's get it done and let's not cut any corners. And that is kind of the hallmark of, in my opinion, why it became the track that it did. I I keep telling people the last 20 years, whenever people talk about I'm like, one of the greatest assets we had was time. Like you're alluding to there, Chris. You know, we had so much time, and we don't get anywhere near that these days. And something else that I always thought contributed to the way the track sounds is typically you assign a reel to an editor, and that person handles backgrounds, everything in the reel. And we've never done that. <laughs> I don't know if you guys are doing that in New Zealand now, but all the way through King Kong and the Hobbits, we we didn't do that. We we sort of assigned tasks, like Brent handled all the weapons brilliantly, and Tim took care of all the backgrounds, uh, in, in addition to other things, of course, but but all the backgrounds for Fellowship, as know. far as effects go. And, you know, I sort of like selfishly took a lot of the fun stuff and I didn't just make sounds for it. I actually never really made a library, which is kind of weird for design stuff. The Everything I built, I built from scratch. Like even if you look at the, the Mumikill sequence and stuff like that, if, if my sessions even existed anymore, you'd see that they point to like the source files, like the source recordings, not even like cleaned up things, you know. So I built everything one by one, every breath, every piece of it. So... I'm getting a little bit long-winded, but it, this is all part of what Chris was talking about is time and money and, and resources going into it. And we also had Stone Street and all these great things to record at that Peter owned, you know, where we could go record in the sound stages. And we just had free reign, and it was just fantastic. And not just the sound stages, but the Wrights Tunnels and the Macro Cemetery. I mean, oh, there were so many locations close to Wellington and places in nature that we could go, and there were just so many opportunities to record and, you know, the house graveyard that Chris Ward and I recorded all night one night. And it just, so there were just so many opportunities and it was so easy to record there. And like you said, we had the time and we went on so many 
multi or you know long day trips just recording streams and waterfalls or whatever. I remember going to record the glowworm caves with somebody. I don't remember who that was, uh, but that's what I was gonna say. I think it was you and I, Katie, wasn't it, that went out there? Katie was probably at most of those records. I just remember you were doing everything. Hey, it was awesome. It was so much fun. Why would I miss out? You know, it's <laughs> funny because as you as I forgot about that lateral cutting. As the mixer, it drove me nuts. And Brent knows on Avatar, I came in and I said, we're not doing that. I can't stand it because what happened? I do want to say, though, Fellowship was not actually cut that way for the most part. Return of the King was very much, but Fellowship, Brent and I took full reels. I mean, yes, we cut wider than that. We cut categories for certain things, but we also did divide those reels into, like, Brent, you had three or four reels, and I was responsible for three or four reels to put it all together before the mix. But by the time Return of the King came around, it was very much one person's doing horses, Hayden's doing horses, one person's doing this. I remember showing up in on Return of the King, and one of the things I was tasked with was doing a bunch of the Mount Doom stuff because nobody had sort of taken it on, and it was like two weeks before it was supposed to mix. And that was my big sort of takeaway from that was like the danger of that sort of lateral cutting thing was like trying to make sure that it's fine for doing weapons or horses, but then there's all the little one-off things that don't necessarily occur over all the reels, and you got to make sure that they're all covered as well. So it's an interesting way to cut, um, and it's great for consistency. Yeah, I have to say, Tim— what you did on Mount Doom to this day was one of my favorite things to mix because you, you did such an exquisite job. It was so amazing. But the challenge for me with the lateral cutting is that you guys stayed in your lane until you got your lane finished, and then you started to bleed out into other lanes. And so I just had so much material. And that's why I, I was like, this lateral cutting is great for all of you guys, but as the mixer... I was overwhelmed with material, and there was a lot of sort of, well, I did a version of that, and I did a version of that. Oh, I've got a version of that. It was a challenge. Oh, I'm not claiming it was efficient. <laughs> I'm, 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 uh, oh, and I know it drove you guys nuts. I'm just saying that it, that it leads to a common thread sonically, you know, like like Brent's weapon cutting and stuff like that. And, you know, I've cut, you know, everything with the ring wraiths or the trolls or the Balrog or the Mama Kill or the wraiths. You know, I basically cut those scenes, you know, so there was a thread. The reason I do that is because I'm never quite done with the design. It's always evolving all the way to the end. And I'm never happy with it until it's, I had to eventually just let it go. But it's like I know, I know what it's supposed to sound like from the other reel, so I was like could transfer it to, the, to each reel that I was cutting it in. Yeah, no, Chris, I'm not, I am not claiming it's the way to go. <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Know, it's one way to go. It, it is one way to go. I still feel like it has something to do with a common thread throughout. One reel doesn't sound like different from another reel. Well, I mean, doing all the backgrounds, like one person doing, like me trying to do all the backgrounds was, I think, a good thing just because it, yeah, I mean, for better or worse, that they they are cohesive, I hope, you know, the whole movie and stuff. And, you know, and we had so many recurring locations throughout the films and stuff as well. It would have been tricky to map that across multiple editors trying to keep track of the locations and who's got Rivendell in their reels. So like most of us have it probably in there or something at some point. Because the other thing is also we didn't really have, did we have much of a service structure in that situation where we could, because if we were swapping sounds with each other, we would have had to have been literally taking drives into each other's rooms. I think that's right. I think we were, weren't we? What about the panorama thing? Because there was a panorama database that yeah, wasn't everybody, that. but wasn't everybody, wasn't there a server of some kind for, for like common library stuff? There was, but not for cutting. So that was one of the reasons I think that I was asked to go down was to help. I mean, when we 
we went down there, there was no facility library, right? We were building a new facility. I mean, we literally moved into an old airport administration building with no soundproofing and that wasn't designed for sound at all. And it became great fun. I mean, that became our home. But yeah, I mean, everybody kind of pooled their sounds and said, here's what we've got to start. And um, yeah, before SoundMiner and things like that, we used a program called Panorama, which was actually more like a FileMaker program. Mm -hmm. And that's what we were using at Skywalker at the time. And so, yeah, I pooled, I took everything together and we sort of put together this Panorama database. But I don't think we had any kind of a cutting server, certainly. Maybe we had somewhere we could pull picture off of or something like that. But we were all cutting on individual drives. I'm almost positive because... I think maybe by Return of the King, there was something set up, but not on Fellowship. What about, like, how do we handle fixes on the stage, like out at the film unit? Because we had the fizz, that was like 15 Carrier or 20 pigeons. miles out, right? You know, I mean, I remember driving out there, but I don't remember how we handled mix fixes and, and, and library stuff out there. At the film unit, it had to be a situation where everybody would cut it separately. Then it was... It had to be made into a 4.2 Pro Tools session in order to then get put onto an MMR8. That's right. Do you remember? I had to write this program. Do you remember CopyMate? I do yes. remember CopyMate. I had to, because, because we were backing up everything to DDS4 drives. So, mm-hmm. you know, to, to avoid all this overwriting of data, because Pro Tools at the time, if you did a save session copy with audio, it would make a new file with a new modification date. So, Retrospect would try to back it up again. So I had to write this, mm-hmm. I wrote this thing in FileMaker called, <laughs> we called it CopyMate, which would take an export session as text that would save the path to the files. And then people would have to export that and then run this thing to copy the original audio. God, I remember that. I haven't thought about that in 20 years. So that the backup system didn't have to re-back up the audio. I mean, I just want to say there was so much tech that was born out of these movies. I mean, if you think about it, from Virtual KD to Conformalizer and Matchbox, almost all of the conforming programs that are now sort of prevalent, even Edit Load, Mark Franken, so many of these things came out of rings. And I mean, I remember Chris Ward, Peter Mills, and I spending days with quick keys back then and trying to sort of wrangle some kind of way to edit a session basically with just like the change note information and quick keys moving around, which then ultimately evolved into all of this technology that came out of this project and these series of films. Yeah, I mean, we talk about Virtual Katie was named after Katie. I mean, you know, I don't know if it's still alive anymore or not. I haven't heard about it in a while. But but yeah, so many of these things, you know, we had to re- we were anyway, we really came together and had to invent a workflow. I mean, this yeah. film was, we had to figure out our own way to do all of this stuff. The Burt's Maneuver. Remember the, that was, wasn't that you, Brent? <laughs> the Burt's Maneuver? Yes. The was that? Was that? That, yes. Was the quick, that was the quick key thing that would like look at the guide track and the spotting time code or something like that and it would copy that. Oh my God. It was, yeah, but it was. But I still, I still sometimes on shows now I use the Burt's Maneuver. Remember I've texted you a few times and we called it the Burt's Maneuver because Barry Osborne used to always call you Burt. not Brent but yeah I still use that manoeuvre sometimes and when I'm training people how to do conforms who've never conformed anything before I show them that method so they start to understand how the programs work now here's a here's a little funny little side note Another another Brentism that was a funny thing. Tim and I bring this up between us every now and then. Do you remember the pickup girls virus? <laughs> there was Brent. Brent had this flashing message on his screen called "Pickup Girls," and we had Chris Ward. But I want to make sure that we don't leave Chris Ward out of this conversation because yeah. that guy was on from the very beginning, and he was critical to everything. Rings all the way through Hobbits, and I. 
love that guy, and I just want to make sure we mention him. But anyway, um, Chris was like on the phone with like Norton Antivirus, and we were trying to track down this virus that we thought was going to go run rampant through the show. And I think Tim mentioned something. It was me, yeah. Did you install something? And Brent had installed now up to date and contact, and it had no. I said the the, the message kept flashing across. Conversation said pick up girls, pick up girls, and we thought it was this virus. And it this went on for a long time, and then I went, Brent, did you just like write a message to yourself to pick up your girls after school? And he went, Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the IT had been like paranoid that the whole film was about to leak, and everyone was going to shut, yanking all the cables on every computer so that it didn't spread among the facility. That's pretty much Brent in a nutshell, that story. <laughs> I had one job to do, and it was to pick up those girls. <laughs> and I wasn't going to let it go. So, yeah, that was so weird, though. That was so weird. It was just like one of those kind of arbitrary kind of scenarios where the obvious didn't present. It right. was just this, oh, no, there's something <laughs> malicious. Going the on. phrasing of it sounded very yeah. nefarious, you know what I mean? Well, no, no. Hey, something else I was going to say, though. So a lot of the fixes, though, we were doing, we did have rooms set up at the unit, eh? Once the final was kicking, didn't we? Yeah, you and I each had a room at the film unit because we, we were staying out there so much doing all the conforms. We also had a very simple Pro Tools out there for doing some fixes and things right there on the stage. And we would fly them in on a drive, actually, to the stage machine. But we were all three in the same room working on headphones, Cutting at fixes the at, the, at the film unit, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. There was the three of us out there, wasn't it? Yeah. We had our 5-1 speakers, but we were on headphones because we were all in the same space. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah exactly. The one thing that um, I really, I think, strikes me that has a lot to do with how this picture sounds, these three pictures sound, is that we had a director who was heavily involved in the mix. And he allowed us to be as creative as we wanted to be. And and one thing that there was a lot of musical design that was coming my way that had to weave in and out of the Howard Shore score, as well as um, music group. Brent, remind me of the music group that was doing work with us. Planet Nine. Planet Nine. Planet Nine. A lot of, and and they would have me pre-dub their stuff and So we had this tremendous amount of material, but we had a director who would come in and give sort of a, okay, this is how I see this reel. And then he would engage with us for hours and hours and hours and days and days and days to get the mix to where he wanted it to be. I mean, some filmmakers still do that, but more and more that's rare these days. And, And I feel like that cohesiveness of... Pete and Fran being involved in helping us get this picture to sound the way it did was crucial to what we created. And I, I think that should not be uh, forgotten. Yeah, they were really good. They were really good to us, I thought. I mean, and over the course of the three films, the confidence in us as a team got to the point when we got to Return of the King, we didn't even really spot it. I think Hoppy and Ethan and I were on this. I forget what the, what the system was called in, but it was before FaceTime video was out. It was some sort of video conference because he was over in London with Howard recording the score. And then we would go through reels really quickly over this video thing and sort of quickly spot it. And we got some some good ideas from him, things that weren't quite obvious of what to do in the in the show. But it wasn't like we sat down and spotted the whole thing at the beginning. It was almost spotted it at the end. <laughs> Tim, you were asking them about us, but I want to say something about them. Because when we got over there, I was super impressed by just how versatile all the Kiwi sound people were. Like, they could all do everything. They could cut effects, they could mix, they could go out on and record dialogue on set. You know, I still don't know how to do that. 
You know what I mean? So I'm kind of a specialized animal, but they they had such a vast skill set that it just sort of blew me away. I'm like, wow, what an amazing community of talented people we're landing in here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I kind of knew that having spent a lot of my life there working with Kiwis before I started working on this film, but not in the film world. That is the Kiwi spirit. And that's why I knew that if anybody could pull off Lord of the Rings, that it could be done in New Zealand. I just, that's the Kiwi spirit. They know how to, what's the job? Let's figure out how to do it. And everybody's a specialist, but everybody's a handy person at the same time. And it was such a great place to be at that time because all of the Kiwi population was also into the films, knowing that they were coming. Like we all were, we were all building this thing. It was a community effort. Like when we go over to Stone Street and record stuff, it wasn't just the effects department going over to record effects. Dialogue department, everybody, everybody came over. Like, remember the time we went over and we had like two by fours with bottle Metal caps? Shoes. Tap, yeah. yeah, scraping across for the Moria orcs. Everybody was involved. Yeah. That everybody that yeah, wanted to. Yeah, I think beer, beer was also involved as well. But, you know, we got so much access around the entire community. People were so open to everything and, and wanting to participate however they could, whether it was lending us a hot air balloon to record the flames or whatever it happened to be. They were just really into it. Felt like we were on the tip of greatness and, I mean, or being part of something great. Yeah, well put. Yeah. I just remember, in addition to how talented everybody was, just how wonderfully friendly everybody was. And when I landed at the airport... Chris Ward and Peter Mills, you know, met me coming off the plane. And Matt Dravitsky, I remember at the time, was took me to my new apartment, who's now, I think, basically one of Peter's producers. But he was like the travel coordinator at the time, 23 years ago or whatever. Yeah, Chris and Peter were there to meet me. And Chris really became like the father figure, I think, to all of, like to me at least. My room was right next to his. And, you know, he constantly was making sure that I was okay. And not just in work, but in learning about Wellington and making it my new home and you know, always making sure that I wasn't lonely and everything else. And so, yeah, the, the warmth that was extended to us was pretty extraordinary. Except for Brent. Stay away from you, Tim. No, and look, Chris is still like that. Chris has never changed. He's just exactly the same as he was then. He's, uh, and he's really enjoying himself and the work he's doing. As you can only imagine, he does. Because that's mm. how he um, he just brings it all. So, no, yeah. he's, he's in great space at the moment. Um, and yeah, it was a lot like that. And also, I mean, location-wise as well, we didn't, we don't have to even like in Australia. Coming over from Australia, you know, working in Sydney, there was no way you could record in Sydney if you wanted to record anything mm. um, in, in nature, as it were. Whereas here in you know, Wellington, effectively, you can kind of drive for maybe an hour, and you're in the middle of nowhere where you can uh, do great recording out of macro for the um, macro cemetery for. Anything we were doing there, arrows and bits and pieces, but also um, just heading over the hill to the, the wire wrapper to record horses or, you know, and the openness around it meant that a lot of that stuff got achieved and recorded reasonably quickly and generously, you know? Yeah, and unlike in a, a lot of places in America, nobody down there would think about trying to charge you for it or putting stipulations on it, you know, if you're just like, hey, could we go record it? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I don't think there were any roadblocks at all to anything we ever asked for pretty much. 
Although I think you pointed out, Tim, after you started working with us, that you were like, oh, beer is currency here. (laughs) As a non-drinker, it was interesting to watch the consumption levels of certain beverages that the New Zealanders could put away. Let me just put it that way. But it was also because we didn't actually have a large budget at all for doing recordings by any means. And so it was all a process of negotiation. And True. So it was all about, like, goodwill. And as you have all pointed out, there was a lot of New Zealand goodwill about getting these films made, and there was a lot of pride in our country to make that happen. And so as a result, people were willing. But at the same time, they were still generous, and it would always be a situation of sort of I would try to find out if I'd done a negotiation to borrow a concrete grinding wheel from a vintage shop, you know, I'd sort of find out what the guy's favourite beer was and then drop <laughs> it off at 4, 4.30pm on a Friday and that afforded me goodwill to to then have other opportunities with that because just giving some chap $25 is sort of a bit paltry but making sure it's a case of tui, oh, well, that's gold. So, you know... <laughs> But it was, um, yeah, there was there was obviously a lot of goodwill there and a lot of people really wanted in New Zealand for this to happen as a production and wanted to see it succeed and wanted to be a part of that. And people were extremely kind and generous. I think the idea of wanting it to succeed might seem alien to people that are younger because in hindsight, these movies were massive blockbusters. But at the time you were making them, like fantasy films were not the kind of films that were filling up movie theaters across the world. It seemed like it changed the entire industry. You all work, well, not all of you, maybe all of you work on Marvel films and Avatar now. Those types of movies weren't coming out monthly at that time. It was more the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sly Stallone was the, the kings of the world at that time. So when you were working on it, did you feel the pressure? Did you know it was going to succeed? How, how, how did you think it was going to be accepted at that time? I don't think we had any clue. I think that we knew that there was a passion for Tolkien, for his writings. And, and I think we all sort of felt that it was going to be a big hit in England. But we didn't know how the U.S. would respond or the rest of the world. I do believe that by film two, really within film one, I mean, the story that was being told was so universal to mankind, to humankind. And Gandalf became this grand figure that kind of spoke to the pain and torture of human existence. And so it didn't surprise me when I saw the massive hit that it was. I think when I mentioned like the tax cut in my first memory of it, I, I don't mean to imply that I thought the movie was bad or anything, but just that Rings was certainly, especially Fellowship was a movie that sure changed a lot over that year that we worked on it. I mean, again, it went through so many revisions, but also, and this isn't sort of secret knowledge, there were a lot of reshoots on that film. There was a lot of stuff that was completely redone. So it changed drastically from that first like four and a half hour, very, very rough cut with no visual effects and all these things to what it became. So it was pretty amazing to see how Peter wrangled the film sort of into existence, I think, by the end. And I think we all recognized what a good film it was. But yeah, I still didn't know. I mean, again, like you said, fantasy was not a genre that was sort of in vogue at that time. But I mean, as we started to see some of the visual effects come in and started to see 
the scale of it really and the story all come together. I mean, it, I think it did become clear that it was something pretty special, but that didn't mean it was going to be a success, at least not to me. Well, you know how you work on a movie and you see it in all of its stages, and it's kind of hard to see it at its final stage fresh. Right. And when you've been on it all that time. And that's that's kind of the way Fellowship was for me. I wasn't sure because we had seen it in stages where it wasn't great. And by the time it got great, I couldn't tell that it was. And we'd seen it so many times. And I know the pressure was high because starting with with the Weta tour from Richard Taylor, trying to live up to what they had done detail-wise was one pressure. And then being a fan of the books was another pressure. Like, you know, all of a sudden I was like, I've got this bell rock. This is, I've got to give this guy a voice and the cave troll and the wraiths. It was like all these things had been like massively influential on me from reading the books. And I was like, now I've got to give these things a voice, you know? And so the pressure was huge and I didn't know how it was going to be received. It had no idea in the end, was it a good job or not? And it's like Chris was saying, by the time Two Towers came around, we knew that the, that the audience was on board. Yeah, and I think I'll speak for myself, but I think that the process we were going through and just sort of quagmired in that as a team, we are all pretty tight and just kind of barreling forward. I don't know how many of us were really thinking about the end game. We were thinking, we knew we were making something epic and we we're really proud to be involved in that and really honoured to do so and just involved with the team and the exercise and so forth. But it was like, what are people going to think of it? I don't know. We weren't sitting around pontificating that at all. No, we were so busy just trying to finish it that probably none of us were really thinking about that, especially the last three or four months, of course. Not, Not at yet. all. No, no, we weren't. It was exactly right. I mean, we were more thinking, how are we going to get it done and survive in the process? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think in, coming from Australia, it was interesting in Australia, there was talk of people's involvement in Australia. And it struck me at that point that I don't think anybody in Australia had dealt with anything on this scale. And it was just one of those things which was uh, therefore a voyage of discovery for me throughout fellowship especially. But it was that fact that we were all as a really tight team here. And there was no question about confidence in each other's work either. It was all very much the way it came together was on epic scale. It was so awesome to hear some of that material, like the Balrog and the Cave Troll sequence and the um, Moria Cage and all that kind of thing was just at a scale I hadn't kind of experienced before and was just absolutely delighted to be involved in. Yeah, I mean, it was funny because this film was so much, I think, for all of us, like film school on so many levels as well. Like, I was very early in my career. I know, Dave, you've been doing sound design for all, but nothing at this scale and maybe this level of responsibility that you were tasked with. And Brent, I mean, you had been in the film a long time, but again, this was something unique that it was completely new. So we were just, at the same time we had this huge job, we were also kind of invent inventing our own process the entire time. And figuring out, it's sort of like you, somebody mentioned the sort of handyman reference, and that's what it kind of felt like. We're like, oh, something's leaking today. What do we do? And like, well, we could do this or this or this. And everybody would dive in and figure out a way to solve it and then move on to the next problem that was inevitably going to come the next week or something. And just the facility and Chris Winter figuring out all the IT things over the years in, in this old airport building that had holes in the walls in certain places and whatever. It was just from day one, it was like problem solving. There was no sort of structure preset. We invented our own process for the entire film, especially fellowship. 
And that was fun and daunting at the same time. Yeah, we all sort of discovered ourselves along the way here. Nobody had been doing it so long that they had a preconceived notion of what it had to be. We all had a certain sensibility about how we, what we thought the threshold should be, but we didn't, didn't quite know creatively what that was. And we were just sort of pushing every day to try to make sure that what we were cutting was going to stick on screen. My old tricks I had been using before that didn't work anymore. You know, I had to sort of reinvent myself because of the style of just piling on, layering a bunch of stuff together did not stick on screen anymore because what Peter was putting on there was so realistic and so refined that I had to basically start muting things and just pulling things back to make things sound real. Uh, do I remember rightly that Pete at one point was saying, because do we have much music? Uh, reference when we were cutting a fix. No, I don't think we did. I don't think so either. And I do remember vaguely Pete saying, no, that's all going to happen in the final. And that's all, we're going to get all the material in from the effects, we're going to get all the dialogue in, we're going to get the ADR in, we're going to work out which you know, ADR or dialogue, production dialogue, which was done for the entire film, so as far as I'm aware. And music will be landing at the same time. So then... That's when the fun starts. That's when we're going to mix this film. I was thinking about that earlier today, Brent, just what you're saying. And I think that that was a direct intent that Pete had. That I remember him saying, I don't want you thinking about the music when you're cutting sound effects or mm -hmm. when you're sound designing. I don't want you thinking about the music when you're pre-dubbing because he really had this notion that he wanted everybody working independently, doing their greatest stuff and to bring it all to the stage and then figure it out in the final mix. And to this day, I just cherish that way of working. And it really was everybody put... 110% into everything. And then we did, you know, of course things clashed, but we figured out a pathway to give a clear and concise storytelling process sonically with all these amazing assets, all the amazing music, all the amazing sound design that was like music, as well as the practical sound design, as well as all these incredible recordings you all did. It all came to the stage in the final mix and we worked it out on a daily basis, this massive amount of material. And it's not often that we get to do that anymore. I do, I mean, I do remember though, there were, there were times when we had sound design that we wanted to get in front of Peter with the intention of maybe convincing him not to score a particular scene, you know, with one famous scene in particular, the entrance into Brie with the ring wraiths sneaking into the, into the, into the, the inn there. And, you know, Brent, you and I had cut up and Dave, the three of us had really worked on that scene a ton. And we had really worked up a really cool, creepy, pretty much a full track for that whole scene. It was very quiet. And I remember the day we heard the score come in and it was this huge operatic, just massive piece of score. And, you know, we had, I think, you know, we'd even tried to sort of figure out if we could get that in front of Pete before that happened because we were all fearing that. And then in the end, I know, Chris, on the mix stage, you they were able to pull out some of the music and we were able to carve out a part of that scene and everything. And I know what you mean, although everybody bringing everything, but I also sort of think that there's a little bit of a danger in that sometimes too, in that, you know, it makes the job in the final mix that much harder when you do have, and I'm not saying there were a ton of clashes, but there were certain places that I know we felt really strongly about that we really wanted to lobby. Don't put music or please don't score this scene. We've done something really cool. And then we didn't, you know, it didn't come out exactly how we had hoped, things like that. Yeah, you're right, Tim. But as you well know, we would never get away with that on most of the movies we work on today because we wouldn't get that kind of time to work out those issues. 
or even to even present to the client, here's a pass with no music or here's what we've done. I mean, Pete would usually consider things like that, even if he knew he had a great score. And we just don't get that opportunity anymore with the with the schedules that we have. Thank God that Pete ultimately heard the effects and decided he's like, oh, that's great. Let's take some music out and let's have it do this and really have this dramatic shift from this huge score to very quiet, then back to the full score. So, you know, he, to his credit, he absolutely was willing to explore all of that. Like you're saying, I think, is he wanted all the tools, he wanted all the chess pieces there for the final game, knowing that he wanted to be able to weave them and play with them as he wanted. He didn't want to commit to something before hearing what everybody had brought to the table, which I totally get. Yeah, and I, I like your reference to the loud to the quiet, because as you know, there was sequences where he would let us get absolutely silent and it was so effective the dynamic that we created was so effective to help tell that story i think there's another great thing about pete as well which is that i think that environment is helped by his lack of this is an absolute kind of thing i cherish about pete and that is his kind of lack of not judgment but that he will not judge you for what you present he may tell you, right. no, I think I like this and I like this, and but I don't really like that. But there was never a situation I don't think I've ever experienced with Peter where he's really laid into sound for something that I presented that he thought was not useful, let's say. He would always kind of accept it, talk about it, talk through it, and, and work out what he wanted to use as opposed to what was a music say. But there would never be a, like a lambout, or whatever you call it, any of kind of abusive behaviour on his part to the sound team about presenting something that he thought was not what he wanted. He would just explain it away and then would kind of move on. That's so well put, Brent, because what that creates is that it allowed all of you as sound designers and editors to really get creative and really do some amazing stuff that you might not have done otherwise because you knew that even if Pete didn't like it, he would consider it. And if he didn't like it, he'd say, you know, okay, interesting, but I want to go this direction. But nobody would be sort of abused, as you say, for for taking it in a direction that he didn't want to go. And so you felt that creative kind of, license to go in different directions and much of which stuck and is a big sonic imprint of of that film is all of the stuff that you guys experimented with a lot of it got in because he embraced it i concur with all that i mean i've been i was on the receiving end of him changing his mind about things or not necessarily changing his mind but reacting to something i had done and he wanted something else and i never ever felt berated or put down, it was always like, I want something else. But to Chris's point, it made me feel free to explore. I wasn't ever afraid to present something, even if it was pretty wacky. I wasn't afraid to play it because I knew that he wasn't going to rip me a new one. You know, if, if he didn't like it, he would just change direction. That's the beauty of it. He also gave us the freedom and encouraged us to invent things. He wanted to hear what we would bring to the table. He didn't want to say, use a tiger. Use a, you know, use of this, use of that. He hired us to bring our best work and then he could choose from it or shift us to another place. So I always appreciated that, that I didn't feel like I was bottled in 
from the beginning. I was able to explore just freely. Hey, guys, I'm going to have to uh, check off here because I've got my... Uh... Your library card's expiring. Yes, the library's got to close. <laughs> He's out of beer. <laughs> well, we could go on all night, and you should. And, and I, uh, we could go on I forever. really appreciate being involved in this. Thanks for joining us, Chris. I appreciate you going through the effort to figure out a way to join us, even though your roof was ripped off your house. <laughs> All right, everybody. You, I love you all. Great love to you see too, you. Brother. Love you too, Chris. See you, Chris. I was wondering if maybe we could go through with each of you and pick a favorite scene or something that you worked on that you thought turned out really well or something like that. Katie, maybe a recording session that you were thought went really well or something like that, if you all want a moment to think about it. <laughs> I can't decide on a, a, a single thing. I mean... Yeah, I don't have a favorite. I certainly had a lot of great recording sessions with Tim here, and we went to all kinds of places, took him through a paddock with a bull in it. I was like, no, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, Remember the petting zoo that we went to where the turkey poked a hole in my Zeppelin... <laughs> and that little duck, that little duck followed us around the entire day. I know. And we're trying stop. to get. We're just like. <laughs> we were trying to get twenty birds, and there was this bloody paradise duck squawking away. <laughs> 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 followed us all yeah. day long. We'd chase <laughs> it, it away it, and it had come a thing back. For and, you. I think it had a thing for you, like that bloody camel did. <laughs> the camel, yeah. So much recording. <laughs> but I still remember. There's two two recording sessions that just off the top of my head that I thought were pretty funny. So one of the first time I think it might have even been the very first time I recorded with Dave Farmer and Tim Nielsen here, was we, we had access to Wellington Zoo quite a bit. I'd struck up a bit of a relationship with them and they were super into it, like I was saying earlier. It was people's goodwill. It certainly wasn't anything I necessarily instigated, but people wanted to be part of it. And so we got to record. We were around the back of the zoo but with these three lioness cubs, although they're like, you know, 350 pounds or whatever they are. And um, we were around this back area as they were cleaning the main enclosure and the three of us were standing there and Dave, Tim and I had not worked together much before or anything like that. You know, I think it was one of the first sessions and suddenly there's the, um, we're all sort of standing there and these lionesses just sort of pacing around and they're not really doing anything. And then I guess at a certain moment all three of us looked just glanced down at our equipment and we're standing behind just a chain link fence at this point and we're in a narrow enclosure probably only about two or three feet wide at the back of their enclosure and um, suddenly uh, one of them just leaps for us and just goes at the, <laughs> at the three of us because we all looked away and I think the only thing recorded was the sound of the three of us squealing. <laughs> you know <laughs> anyway that was pretty funny but then the other one that I remember was um, Hoppy and Ethan coming to me when we were doing Return of the King and there's the whole scene where Minas Tirith is being destroyed and that Hoppy and Ethan had played Peter a sequence that they'd done of all the big chunks of Minas Tirith getting flung back onto the army and um, apparently Pete said something to the effect of, and I don't know verbatim or anything, he said something like, well, what does it really sound like when a large piece of concrete hits the ground? And um, so they were like, oh, OK. You know, it wasn't that Pete didn't like what he was played, exactly as to attest to what Dave and, and Brent and 
Chris was saying before, like Peter was just like, oh, well, what would it sound like if we did this? As against, I hate what you've done or anything. And so then Ethan and Hoppy came to me and said, could you organise this? And so then it was kind of, oh, how do we drop concrete from a great height? And um, I had a friend who worked in special effects and he told me about a bomb release that they'd used for, that are used in aircraft for as a manual situation. So a bombing aircraft can actually release, can be manually released and the same technology was used with the flooding scene in the very first film by the special effects department. And some Americans had brought that over and so he was like, we could do that and release concrete ballast blocks that he used in construction to hold, like if you have to lift up a very heavy load with a crane, you need a ballast on the other side so the crane doesn't tip over. So they're large concrete blocks with steel reinforced cables through them. So he was like, we can get some old ones of those and just sort of basically drop them from a great height with a crane. And he was like, do you know a crane? I was like, actually, Justin Webster has a crane. And he was, um, at the time, one of our effects people and his father ran a company. Anyway, so it all goes on like this. It, it could ramble on a long time, but it's kind of hilarious. So, yeah, basically we started dropping these uh, two-ton concrete blocks in and made this crater. And we had, it was recorded up the wazoo with buried microphones and all sorts of stuff to get these recordings and they were multi-channel recordings. It was all very detailed. It was a pretty hilarious recording that involved basically, I think, the entire sound team, and Mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun, and it was all basically because Peter just turned around and said, so what does it really sound like when a concrete block hits from an enormous height? And all of this chain of events happen, which involves so many people and so many people contributing Nothing like a bit of destruction in the afternoon. Yeah. And that was actually um, uh, just to follow on because I, that was one of most, my most enjoyable experiences cutting because cutting it, we almost used single elements which were not like, if anything, there was, say, two or three elements played together from the same recording because if you added anything else to the sound, it changed the sound of them hitting. So we had these geophones and we had kind of material from the top but in the end it was actually cut with very little of those recordings because they just nailed the sound that was the sound of a large concrete piece of concrete landing on the ground that was great fun to reinvent well not reinvent I'd never really cut kind of weaponry before so it was all a case of learning off our esteemed colleagues here and um, getting advice from them and then working out a way of putting it all together I think Probably the enjoyable thing for me was being able to present LCR material to the stage because there was so much detail in the kind of weaponry that to literally turn up with a large amount of mono tracks or kind of just built tracks to then try and work out color, yeah, you know, which you can these days with color coding and even just kind of virtual mixing, kind of getting the panning done. I was allowed to start using LCR. And what that enabled one to do was get just more detail. And so you could actually really drill into where you may, in other shows, you may kind of go, oh, no, you'll never hear those arrows in the back there kind of flying past. But you would put them in. And then that kind of level of layering 
would just add to the kind of realism of what you were seeing on screen. Because with it being so much of it shot live action in a way, even though there was a massive amount of visual effects involved, a lot of that material I was dealing with, combat and that kind of thing, was live action. And so it just added to that realism of the um, live action so well. Tim, it was mentioned earlier that you were in charge of a lot of the ambiences. How did you go about creating a world without making it sound familiar? It has to sound somewhat familiar. I I remember spending so much time just trying to figure out that balance of, uh, I mean, because Tolkien meant for the books to be feel like England, his hometown. The Shire was meant to be a small rural area in, in England, and so it had to sound like that. So it was a lot of just finding the right pieces and just all of this balance. I mean, I you were asking sort of our maybe the things we're proudest or something. I mean, I I think for me there's two. One was Mount Doom, just because. That was the third film. I wasn't involved in Two Towers. I had gone back to the States. They invited me to come back for two months on Return of the King. And one of the things I tackled was the Mount Doom sequence. And that was cut very, very fast. You know, it had to go up in the mix stage within about two weeks of me landing, I think. So, and I think almost all of my best work has been stuff that's been done very, very quickly. So that was just a, you know, it was one of those, there wasn't time to think. It was just start. And so it was very instinctive. That holds a special place in my heart. But for me, in the first film, My favorite thing, which was something I was working on for a long time and I couldn't figure it out, was I knew in Rivendell in the scene where Aragorn and Arwen are saying their goodbye, basically. And it's this really stunningly beautiful nighttime scene. And the the books that I always refer to the the streams in Rivendell is sounding like glass. And so I tried for months trying to figure out how to make this sound of glass water. Um, wanting to do something really special for that scene. And I never got it right. And then one day, there used to be a plug-in called, um, what was the old uh, noise reduction? Dinner. Dinner. It was this terrible noise reduction plug-in that artifacted within like 0.1 second of trying to use it. And one time I was I was sending, I don't know what I was trying to do, but I was sending some crowd walla through it and it artifacted in this perfect way and it sounded like glass water. It started doing this warble and like that was the perfect sound. And anyway, that's one of my favorite scenes in all of the movies. Kind of like Dave's talking about the the visual shot of the ring with Boromir, which is also my favorite shot of the whole trilogy for visuals. But the sound of that Rivendell nighttime scene to me, because it's light music, it's pretty music, but it's this very, it's this beautiful and yet very sad scene and the sound of the streams and the sound of the birds and stuff. That's one of the moments that I just thought came out sort of just perfectly for what I wanted it to sound like anyway. So, David, you were in charge of a lot of the uh, creature vocals, I believe. Mm -hmm. Did you want to talk about how you came to some of those? Well, that's a big topic. That's kind of like it's um, (laughs) from the very beginning. I, I tried I wanted to avoid the usual suspects, lions and tigers and things like that. So, um, in the end, tigers got used a lot because you can't <laughs> avoid them. They're just like the raspiest, nastiest, most powerful thing. And they're used in the cave troll. They're used in the Urukai and in the wargs. And who knows? I can't remember everything else. But as components, you know, or, or a bit in a piece throughout. It's, like I say, it's too big of a subject. But I can tell you that the features I had worked on where I had done creatures before rings was... Layering things up, working on a synclavier, playing too many keys at once, you know, just, it's kind of a mush. And when I got to Fellowship, that was, you know, I I was like, well, I gotta, I gotta try what I know. So I was trying all of these sort of techniques, but nothing was sticking to screen. Nothing was living there, you know. So I had to 
go back to basics and just start paring back one thing at a time. And the thing I was worried about when you have that many creatures across a trilogy and creatures you know are coming, if you use up your entire pool of sources, because there's only so many sources of animals in the world, really. So you have a finite bit of material to work with to try to make all these things. So I was very careful to try to not use everything up in the first movie, you know, leave myself some material for other, other shows. So it, it came down to like trying to play one thing at a time, just one element, not layering anything together, just kind of going, okay, this is going to be a horse, this is going to be a, a lynx breath, this is going to be a tiger, and not layering things on top, and just had to pick things that fit the screen. But I think the things that probably got layered the most were the wraiths. Which you know was was one of the things that wasn't going the way Peter wanted, and quite frankly, wasn't I wasn't really happy with it either. But I hadn't just hadn't reached that point. So as we were reinventing the wraiths, I decided to to play him like five different versions, like just one thing, five different completely different flavors. And he heard one thing he liked, which was a piece of a girl's scream that I had stolen off of a three-quarter inch video from a TV show I had done way a long time ago. So I only had one scream and also didn't have rights to use that. So we couldn't use that. I'm like, well, I can't really use that. You know, that, I'm just trying to find a sound you liked. And he's like, well, Fran can scream like that. So we got Fran in the studio and she screamed her lungs out, blew her voice out after only like four or five screams because a person can't scream that hard. So I only had four or five of those to work with over the course of the trilogy. So I, I had wound up recording myself doing inhale screams and pitching those up and layering that. And then also a little little plastic squeak from a, a towel rack we had in, in the house at the time. So that was a, it was just a mixture of stuff like that. Not a lot of dry ice and on metal, but maybe a little bit here and there. So that's kind of how the rates race were the most layered thing. Everything else was... Pretty much one thing at a time. Well, and I think like in the cave troll sequence, the cave troll had to be that way because it's such a dense, elaborate scene. I remember because I helped doing a little of that cutting with you on that scene and stuff. And it was, you know, it would go from a very specific small piece of the tiger for the attack and then into something else for the, the long pain thing and then something else. And yeah, it kept they were very clean, all the vocals in that scene. And I mean, I think really we did a pretty good job keeping the effects pretty clean through the whole movie, knowing the density of what could have been we had to keep it clean because it was just, even though you have these scenes and the first time you were using computer graphics to generate the sound of a thousand orcs in the shot, you couldn't try to reproduce the sound of that. You had to figure out to keep it much simpler. But yeah, I mean, I think all the creatures in the rings sound so clean versus, you know, a lot of the other stuff that we had heard before. And even since, you know, they're, they're very focused and that gives them a lot more character because the single pieces get to do so much more than being muddied up by other pieces blended in with them. And which is, I find all the time in my creature work, I kind of coin generic screaming monster when you just layer a bunch of things together and it all just sounds the same. And it's so hard to do well sometimes. Well, one of the tricks I talk about in other interviews and stuff is trying to make things easy on the audience. You don't want the audience to have to work or lean into something and go, well, is that, is that sound for that or is that sound for that? For instance, like if you had two wargs on screen at the same time, you couldn't use a wolf for both of them. You know, one would be a wolf, one would be a tiger, or one would be a tiger, the other one would be a lion. And then your ear just works it out without any effort. 
You know what I mean? So you're trying you're trying to make things easy on the audience so they don't have to struggle, and it's so because that takes them out of the experience. You know, even if it's just for a brief moment. So you kind of just want to make sure that it flows and doesn't confuse people. Now we had, we had just come off of the best sounding creature movie of all time to this day, Jurassic Park, the T Rex and the the uh, raptors, and Gary just did mind blowing work on that, and nothing I did comes close to those. Part of the reason the Balrog sounds the way it does was because the T-Rex was very fresh in people's minds at the time. And it's like that thing. I didn't want people to see the Balrog open and have a similar type of roar come out and have people go, oh, yeah, but it's not as cool as a T-Rex. Because it was never going to be as cool as a T-Rex. There's, you know, there's nothing that's beat it to this day, in my opinion. So it had to be something completely off to the other side where people wouldn't wouldn't even in their minds, and for me, compare it to the T-Rex, even in a, in a brief moment. But again, like Gary's stuff, the T-Rex is literally one recording of one sound. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not even, I don't right. mean it's not designed, but it's chosen perfectly. But it's like, again, Gary also didn't layer five or six sounds he never has in any of those things, so it keeps it so clean sounding. Well, the Raptor has a little bit of layering, like it's got the walrus and the dolphin stuff, but yeah. I just didn't want to have a roar because I didn't have any roars that were as cool as that T-Rex roar. So I didn't want it to try to be, I didn't want it to try to be a T-Rex and fail. <laughs> well, I thought it was pretty successful. Got to say, oh, when, he, when he blasts, that blasts, man, it's so cool. It's and it's unlike anything I'd heard before. So, and it just, as you say, he chose exactly the right material for what was on screen because it did. It just kind of made the old hair stand up on the back of the neck. Yeah, whatever you did to that puppy to make it make that sound, I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's something about the creatures that you know may or may not be interesting, but I wanted to make sure on this movie that when the movie was done, I would have access to the sources I used to make everything. So I funded, you know, I, I probably went close to broke on these movies because I, I funded a lot of my own recording sessions, at least the ones I did here in the states, going to lion and tiger sanctuaries, the elephant sanctuaries, the zoo. I paid people out the wazoo off the clock. So I did this outside of like billing hours. So I would have all this material that I owned, you know, as opposed to the production paying for it. Yeah, I almost went broke doing that. But we were recording on DAT at the time. You go to a zoo and record on DAT, you're recording all day waiting for something to happen. Then you got to come home and load it real time and then hunt through everything looking for little nuggets of things. And it's just like, forget it. So glad when sound devices and disc recorders came along, saved our lives. When I think back to the trilogy, I get really nostalgic, you know, because it was such a, such a great experience. And the films are one thing, but what I miss the most is the people and the crew and Wellington and getting to go out into restaurants and bars and stuff. I didn't really take part into bars all that much until the third film when I finally had my sort of senior year where I, where I had a pretty good time. But the rest of the time I was pretty much nose down working, but it, it was such a beautiful experience and just a, the absolute best place if you've got to go work away from home. The Wellington is just the, the absolute I can't imagine a better city. It's not huge, but it's got everything. Very walkable. Yeah. And the people were just, I feel like I met a bunch of people that are like my old high school friends that I feel like we can, even if we don't talk for 15 years, we can just have a beer and pick up where we left off. Just, it's been fabulous. 
I mean, uh, we, we we haven't mentioned nearly enough names in this interview. All these people that contributed to this thing are so many. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like we've talked. We've been talking a lot about the film and the work on the film, but those are things that only really I'm remembering because we're talking about them. But when I think about the projects, I don't think about the work at all. I don't think about the recording sessions, but I think about the lunches at the Chocolate Frog and the Chocolate Fish. And I think about Craig Tomlinson taking me out into the bush in his 4x4 truck and driving me around and going to Chris Ward's house where he made crepes for me that were, like, astonishing, you know. And I remember the people. And, Dave, you and I had met. I think we'd known each other in the Bay Area. Turned out we only lived 10 miles apart from each other, but we really didn't know each other before. We both were sort of found ourselves in this other city. And, of course, there's rarely a day that goes by that I don't talk to you at some point Mm -hmm. or say hi Mm -hmm. and chat or something, you know. And like, but like you're saying, like Brent, you know, it's been at least 10 years since I've seen you and you're, you're looking a little old, I have to say, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but no, I mean, it's weird to think back on that time that was, I mean, I turned 30 there when I was in, in Wellington and, you know, it's hard to think that it's been that long and how many of the memories are sort of falling away, but all of the, the fun memories are of the people and the experiences and the fun that we had, because I mean, forget the work, it was a lot of work, but we had much more fun than we suffered from the work, I think. Well, that's a pretty good note to go out on, I think. Thank you very much, everybody, and uh, hopefully we run into each other again. See you. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. Wow. That was a really fun talk to be a part of. You can probably hear it in their voices, but everyone just had a massive smile on their face for the entire interview, as it was obvious they were enjoying spending time together and reminiscing all those memories. Thanks so much to all. I feel like I could grab an entirely different set of four or five people from those films and do another podcast based on their memories. This episode was edited and mixed by Yanni Caldas. Yanni is a sound designer with a focus on immersive storytelling for video games. His past work includes sound design, implementation, mixing, dialogue management, quality control, editorial, and music editing for AAA and indie game projects. He is also an active field recordist. Yanni's work can be found at www.amnesiasound.ca. Thanks, Yanni. For helping us out, you will be getting a copy of the amazing sound library, Sonic Springs, from Katrina Amsler. You should go pick up a copy for yourself, listeners. On behalf of the Lord of the Rings crew, my name is Tim Muirhead. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Moro. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. Oh, that's a, that was another fun little story, though. Uh, do you remember um, in fellowship yes. when we had to we had to have the entire party clapping to, in time to the music to the party? I do remember that. It was hilarious. I had Howard Shore's <laughs> score on my laptop, and I was playing it over my headphones, and I was clapping and having everybody else try to try to clap in sync with me, so that we had this massive. It's a great sounding recording. <laughs>
You know, it's it's out in the courtyard at mm-hmm. the film unit. Yep. And we had people walking around, so that it, the, the claps were at different distances from the microphones. And when we, and I t- think Tim, you might have even cut this. I can't remember who cut it into the movie, but I thought you cut it. I cut it. Yeah. So it, it but it, it sort of landed in perfect time with the party. Nobody had to go in there and cut in individual hand claps, and they all had the density. And anyway, it was fun for me. Anyway, I don't know if anybody else remembered that. <laughs> yeah. They had nice slaps off the off the courtyard, off the buildings, and stuff. So it had a nice presence of sound. 